Section 12 of The Day of Sir Wilfrid Laurier. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ian Hutchings. Voices.com slash people slash Ian dot Hutchings. The Day of Sir Wilfrid Laurier. A Chronicle of Our Own Time by Oscar D. Skelton. Section 12. In this period, the two most important steps towards cooperation were the appointment of a Canadian High Commissioner in London and the beginning of the colonial conferences. The first step was taken on the initiative of the Macdonald government in 1879. It was found necessary to appoint a Canadian representative in London, both to act as ambassador-at-large in dealing with European states and to serve as a link between the Canadian and British governments. The latter purpose was especially significant. In the days of colonial subordination, the Governor-General had served as the only needed link. His duty was to govern the colony in accordance with the interest and policy of the mother country, and in carrying that out he was responsible to the British government. Now he was becoming the representative not of the British government, but of the King, who was King of Canada as well as of the United Kingdom, and, like the King, he governed by the advice of the responsible ministers in the land where he resided. This change in the Governor-General's status marked the ending of the old colonial relationship. The appointment of a commissioner to represent to one free government the wishes of another free government was one of the first steps in building up the new relationship. The initiative in the second step came from the United Kingdom. A change was now apparent in the attitude of many Englishmen upon imperial questions. The present value of the colonies, their possible greater value in the future, and the need of all the help that could be had from them, were coming to be the leading articles in the creed of many fervent thinkers. The Imperial Federation League, founded in London in 1884, gave vigorous expression to these views and its Canadian branch, formed at Montreal in the next year, to be followed by local branches from sea to sea, exercised a strong influence on the current of Canadian thought. The new desire to bind the colonies closer was largely due to the revival of protection and of imperialism, both in the United Kingdom and in foreign countries. Alike in trade and in defence, colonial aid was by many coming to be felt essential. Abroad, protection was in the ascendant. Cobden's prophecy of the world following Britain's example in free trade had not been fulfilled. France, Germany, Austria-Hungary, Italy, Russia, the United States were rearing higher tariffs, threatening to shut out British goods. Even Canada and Victoria had done likewise. Moreover, France and Germany and the United States were becoming formidable rivals to Britain as they turned more and more from farming to manufacturing. It was little wonder that a section of English opinion began to sigh for protected markets, for retaliatory tariffs to force down bars abroad, and for a revival of the old preference or monopoly in the markets of the colonies. Defense, too, assumed a more anxious aspect. The nations of Europe were entering on a mad scramble for empire, for colonial possessions overseas. Russia pushed steadily westward to the Pacific and south to the gates of India. France sought territory in Africa and in Asia, Germany in Africa and the Pacific, 
Italy in Africa. Nationalism had gone to seed in imperialism. Long prevented by internal dissensions from competing with England in the acquisition of territory, the nations of Europe, now that national consolidation had been largely affected, turned to follow her example. England could not logically object to their desire for territory or to their plans for larger navies. Her Palmerstons and Disraelis had boasted of the might of the empire on which the sun never set. Her Frouds and Seelys were singing the glories of the expansion of England. The man in the street felt the manifest destiny of the Anglo-Saxon to rule the lesser breeds. While the American Mahan had made clear the importance of sea power and had pointed the means to the end so glorified. Nonetheless, the rivalry was felt uncomfortable, the more so as these nations did not follow Britain's free trade policy in their new possessions, and sometimes manifested a lack of scruple which boded ill for future peace. And so from some quarters in Britain came the demand for colonial contributions to the army and navy, or failing that, for some form of imperial federation which would set up a central parliament with power to tax and to control. In August 1886, an influential deputation from the Imperial Federation League waited upon the Prime Minister, Lord Salisbury, and asked him to summon a conference of all the colonies to discuss the idea of setting up a federal council as a first step towards centralizing authority. The Prime Minister expressed his doubt as to the wisdom of discussing political changes which, if possible, were so only in the distant future. Believing, however, that there were other subjects ripe for discussion, he took the momentous step and called the First Colonial Conference. Every self-governing colony and several crown colonies sent representatives. Canada sent Sir Alexander Campbell, Lieutenant Governor of Ontario, and Mr. Later Sir Sanford Fleming, the Apostle of an all-red Pacific cable. Lord Salisbury, in opening the proceedings, referred to the three lines upon which progress might be made. The German Empire evidently suggested the ideas which he and others had in mind. A political federation, like that of Germany, to conduct all our imperial affairs from one center, could not be created for the present. But Germany had two preliminary forms of union, both of which might be possible a Zollverein, or customs union, not yet practicable, and a Kriegsverein, or union for purposes of mutual defense, which was feasible and was the real and important business before the conference. In the weeks of discussion which followed, the Canadian delegates took little part except upon the question of the cable which was at Sanford Fleming's heart. Australia agreed to make a contribution towards the cost of a British squadron in Australasian waters, and Cape Colony agreed to provide some local defense at Table Bay. Sir Alexander Campbell referred to the agreement of 1865 as still in force, denied that the naval defense of Canada had proved burdensome to Britain, talked vaguely of setting up a naval school or training reserve, and offered nothing more. The conference did not discuss political federation and touched only lightly on preferential trade. As the first of a series, and for its revelation of the obstacles to proposals for Germanizing the British Empire, it proved more important than for any positive achievements. In the stand thus taken, the Canadian delegates adequately reflected the feeling both of the general public and of the leaders of both parties in Canada at that time, alike as to political defense and trade relations. 
As for political relations, the only proposal for change came from the Imperial Federationists. The idea had some notable advocates in Canada, Grant, Parkin, Denison, McCarthy, and others. But many of them advocated it simply because it was the only theory of closer imperial relations than in the field. At first, it was too hazily pictured to make clear the extent to which the Canadian and other parliaments would be subordinated to the proposed new central parliament. When faced with a concrete plan, few Canadians were eager to give up control of their destinies to a parliament in which they would have only one-tenth of the representation. The responsible politicians did not at any time endorse the scheme. Sir John Macdonald, as a practical man, saw at once a fatal objection in the sacrifice of Canadian self-government which it involved. Some of the members of the Imperial Federation League urged with plausibility that the political federation would bring the colony's new power in the shape of control over foreign policy, rather than take old powers away, but Macdonald much doubted the reality of the control it would give. Nevertheless, the Imperial Federation League and its branches did useful educational work. Owing to differences of opinion among its members, it was dissolved in 1893, but was revived and reorganized two years later as the British Empire League. Nor was Canada greatly interested in questions of defense. In the 60s and 70s, it is true, the larger colonies had agreed with some reluctance to assume the increasing share of the burdens of defense made necessary by the increasing control of their own affairs. Gradually, the British troops stationed in Australia, New Zealand, and Canada, save for a small garrison force at Halifax, had been withdrawn, and their places taken by local militia. But as yet, it was understood that the responsibilities of the colonials were secondary and local. As a result of long discussion, the British House of Commons in 1862 unanimously resolved that, Colonies exercising the right of self-government ought to undertake the main responsibility of providing for their own internal order and security, and ought to assist in their own external defense. The duty of the United Kingdom to undertake the general defense of the empire was equally understood. The Committee on Colonial Defense, 1860, whose report led to the adoption of this resolution, agreed that since the imperial government has the control of peace and war, it is therefore in honor and duty called upon to assist the colonists in providing against the consequences of its policy, a position affirmed by Mr. Cardwell's dispatch of June 17, 1865. Given the fact and theory of political relationship as they existed in this period, this compromise was the natural result. Under the old colonial system, the empire was Britain's, governed for its real or fancied gain, and imperial defense was merely the debit side of colonial trade monopoly. The myth that Britain had carried on her wars and her diplomacy for the sake of the colonies, which therefore owed her gratitude, had not yet been invented. True, the day had passed when Britain derived profit, or believed she derived profit, from the political control of the white empire, yet the habits of thought begot by those conditions still persisted. If profit had vanished, prestige remained. The Englishman who regarded the colonies as our possessions was quite as prepared to foot the bill for the defense of the empire which gave him the right to swagger through Europe as he was to maintain a country estate which yielded no income 
other than the social standing it gave him with his county neighbors. As yet, therefore, there was no thought in official quarters that Canada should take part in overseas wars or assume a share of the burden of naval preparation. When an English society proposed in 1895 that Canada should contribute money to a central navy and share in its control, Sir Charles Tupper attacked the suggestion as an insidious, mischievous, and senseless proposal. He urged that, if Canada were independent, England, instead of being able to reduce her army by a man or her navy by a ship, would be compelled to increase both to maintain her present power and influence. He quoted the London Times to the effect that the maritime defense of the colonies was only a byproduct of that naval supremacy which was vital to England's very existence as a nation, and cost not a penny extra, for which reason the control of the fleet must always remain unconditionally in the hands of the responsible government of the United Kingdom. Sir Charles, too, was wont to stress the strategic importance of the Canadian Pacific Railway as Canada's contribution to the defense of the empire. His arguments had much force, but they were obviously the product of a time of transition, uneasy answers to the promptings of the slow-rising spirit of nationhood. Action or inaction corresponded to words. In 1885, when Britain was waging war in the Sudan, New South Wales offered to raise and equip a regiment. The Secretary for War at once spread the news of this offer through the other colonies. Sir John Macdonald's only reply was to offer to sanction the raising of troops in Canada, the whole cost to fall on Great Britain. The offer was declined with thanks. A company of voyageurs, largely French-Canadian, however, was recruited in Canada, at Britain's expense, and did good service in the rapids of the Nile. Sir John Macdonald did not, of course, proclaim Canada's neutrality in this war, any more than Hinks and McNabb had done in the Crimean War, when hired German troops garrisoned Dover and Shorncliffe. Canada simply took no part in either war. But if political federation and inter-imperial defense thus fell on deaf ears in Canada, the question of trade relations received more serious attention. In urging the Pacific Cable and a service of fast steamships on each ocean, Sanford Fleming had hit upon the line along which progress eventually was to be made. Tariff preferences, inter-imperial reciprocity, began to be discussed. As early as 1879, Sir John Macdonald, on finding in England much dissatisfaction over his high taxation of British imports, proposed to give British goods a preference if the United Kingdom would give Canada a preference in return. Thus, on the ruins of the old colonial system imposed by the mother country's edict, would be built a new colonial system, based on free negotiation between equal states. In view of Britain's rooted adherence to free trade, nothing, of course, came of the proposal. Ten years later, there was in England some discussion of protection, or fair trade, and in Canada, during the elections of 1891, the idea of an imperial Zolverein was rhetorically mooted as an alternative to reciprocity with the United States. Three years later still, 1894, the Second Colonial Conference met at Ottawa on the invitation of the Dominion government. The object was to arrange treaties of reciprocity in trade between the various colonies, to serve until such time as the mother country should renounce her free trade errors. There were many forceful and eloquent speeches, notably one by Mr. now Sir George Foster. 
and a resolution was passed in favor of an imperial customs union. But save for a limited arrangement with New Zealand in 1895, no definite result followed. The policy of the liberal opposition in Canada in respect to inter-imperial trade may be briefly stated. Mr. Laurier's first speech, as leader of the party, at Somerset in 1887, has already been mentioned. There, he declared that if commercial union with Great Britain were feasible, he would favor it. But he had more hope of commercial union with other British colonies, which had protective tariffs. Two years later, speaking at Toronto, he referred to the obvious difficulties in the way of commercial union with Britain itself. I would favor with all my soul, he said, a more close commercial alliance of Canada with Great Britain. But, sir, if there is any man who believes that any such an alliance between Canada and Great Britain can be formed upon any other basis than that of free trade, which prevails in England, that man is a Rip Van Winkle, who has been sleeping not only for the last seven, but for the last forty-eight years. The British people will not today go back upon the policy of free trade, and Canada is not in a position at the moment, with the large revenue which she has to collect, to adopt any other tariff than a revenue tariff at best. That free trade among all the British colonies would some day be to their advantage, and that it would come in time, he stated elsewhere, but added that it could not for many years be a practical issue. A notable step forward was taken in 1892. Hitherto liberal and conservative alike had been considering the trade question chiefly from the standpoint of the producer seeking fresh markets by offering in return concessions in the Canadian tariff. Now the Liberals and the McCarthy wing of the Conservatives began to speak of the consumer's interests. The reduction of the tariff would be more important as a relief to the consumer than as a means of buying markets abroad for the producer. Instead of waiting for the distant day when Great Britain should set up a tariff and give Canada reciprocal preference, the Liberals now pressed for giving an immediate and unconditional preference on British goods. A resolution to this effect, moved in the House of Commons by Mr. now Sir Louis Davies, was voted down by the Conservative majority, but it was to bear notable fruit later. End of Section 12 End of Chapter 7